Um, it has been uh, <clears throat> amazing to walk through the Gospel of John. We're only in chapter three, and my <clears throat> my heart is just, man, just uh, I guess a bit weepy, and uh, and <clears throat> at the same time like passionate and emboldened for just the message of the gospel. What a beautiful message! I love that song we sang, "Blessed Assurance." Some of those old hymns remind me of uh, just different stages in my own faith. That's why they're dear to me. Uh, They have great truth in them. But I remember bringing one of my friends to church when I was in high school. I must have been a junior or senior. And we sang that song. And he hadn't grown up around church, didn't know much about church. I don't know if he'd ever been. I just remember afterwards, or as we're singing that song, he turned over and looked at me and be like, what does it mean to be washed in his blood? I was like, ooh. We'll explain that later. You know, if you grew up around church, um, it was terminology that was only used in the church, right? I told you the story a couple weeks ago, first time I met Ashley's father, and I said, uh, hey, brother, and he said, I'm not your brother. And I was like, word. Um, You know, you use phrases like uh, brother and sister, uh, you, you know these, that are only familiar if you grew up in church, like a hedge of protection, right? Hedge of protection. Uh, traveling mercies. How about the unspoken prayer request? It's like, I got it unspoken, just unspoken. I'll just leave it right there. Which either is, you know, in high school, it was like I'm praying for a girlfriend, probably was the unspoken, or that I didn't have anything to pray for. Um, we use, uh, oh, he's backslidden, right? Oh, guys, backslidden. Um, on fire. How about that one? I was talking to a pastor just the other day. He was telling me a story of a uh, mission group that they had uh, sent from their church overseas. And he's walking into the UK right through the airport. And the guy's like, what are you here for? And he's like, to light this city on fire. (laughs) No, you're not, son. Back to the States you go. Um, On fire. And then there's this other one, the born again. And we use that phrase a lot, born again. Or maybe in a derogatory term, he's, he's one of those born-agains. And uh, a lot of people have like moved away from that terminology. And then we get in the passage of John and we say, oh no, this is, this is Jesus' terminology. This is what he used so that we would understand this nature. When I was talking to Ashley about this Christianese, like what are some of these words? She said, well, the danger is if you're on fire next to the hedge of protection, you're going to light that thing up, man. That's not going to be good. <laughs> Touche. I want to ask three questions this morning about our passage. Uh, why must you be born again? How can you be born again? And are you born again? Remember last week, John pairs uh, the really brings the two stories in chapter two of the wedding at Cana, Jesus turning water into wine, and the cleansing of the temple, turning over the tables. And this one kind of main thought of those two stories together is that Jesus fills your table and he turns them over because he loves you. And certainly Jesus created quite a ruckus, and it's on the background of that that Nicodemus comes to Jesus. We see that he comes at night says in verse 1, there's a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews, who came to Jesus by night. 
So the Pharisees, you know, are the religious elite, the religious group, and he's not just a Pharisee, but he's one of the rulers in, 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 in their system. And to say he's deeply religious, we have no real concept for how religious they were. Um, they had seen the cycle of the Israelite people fall into sin and then into judgment and then into captivity. That had been a cycle that they had gone through over and over. And so a well-meaning group of uh, religious leaders says, we cannot keep doing this, so we need more rules. So to, in order to train the heart to obey, they developed more rules, 613 of them. And the Pharisees, by rule, kept every one of them. How many steps you could take on a certain day, uh, the tithing of your own herbs. I mean, I mean, to, to the dots. And the problem was not in the rules themselves, but in the judgment that they produced. If you didn't keep all those rules, they looked down upon you. Real self-righteous kind of way. Nicodemus was raised like any of the other Pharisees in the Jewish school. He had learned the five first uh, books of our Old Testament, probably by time that he was in fifth or sixth grade, he had learned them all. The further they went in that education, they learned the prophets. They would certainly memorize and sing the Psalms. Uh, they knew the wisdom literature of Proverbs, so much so that the Pharisees, what they would stand and talk about is they would be able to quote most of them backwards. They would be able to start at the end of the prophets and quote verse by verse backwards. That's how well they knew them. Not just, I learned these one time. This was a man of the Pharisees, a ruler of the Jews. He was religious upon religious. You have, we have nothing in our society that would even paint even close to an accurate picture of how diligent this man tried to serve God. And he comes to Jesus at night. Partly, probably, to um, avoid the scorn of his other brothers, in the, in the Pharisees, but maybe also just so that he would have some time with Jesus alone. No one else asking questions. He could ask the deep questions. Parents, have you ever tried to have a honest, good conversation with kids in the room? And they're always inter intervening and asking about this. It's, it's almost impossible. So he, he gets Jesus at night and he asks the question, he actually didn't even get to the question. I love this, how Jesus does this. Jesus answered the question before he asked the question. Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God, for no one can do these things unless God is with them. This is what he said. Jesus, knowing what's in his heart, I love this. Jesus answered him. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said, how can a man be born when he is old? This is almost kind of tongue-in-cheek. You can kind of hear him try to figure this out as a man. I know what it was like to be born once. How can a man be born when it's old? We crawl back into the womb of our mother. That's a bad mental picture. Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? That's what he asked. And Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. First, he said he can't see the kingdom of God. Now he can't enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that born of spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear it sound, but you do not know where it comes or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. 
you must be born again. Jesus tells Nicodemus multiple times in this passage and many others that he would encounter along the way. Sometimes he says it a little different, the woman at the well in the next chapter in John 4, the man who was born blind in John 9. On and on, these encounters that Jesus had with these people about entering into the kingdom of God, even the thief on the cross as he's hanging there and pending his death. You must be born again. To need new birth implies that there's something wrong with our first birth. According to the Bible, we were born into a state of spiritual death because of the sin of the human race. God had declared in Genesis, the one who sins will surely die. And when we sin, that's exactly what happened. Adam and Eve were driven out of God's presence, if you remember that. And their relationship with God was severed. And at that point, our bodies, which God had intended to sustain us eternally, began to break down, began to die. And you see the effects of that early on. And the older you get, you see more and more of the effects I went golfing this week, a non-contact sport, and every one of my joints is on fire this morning. At 41, it's just breaking down. Sin's curse affected every part of us, our heart, emotions, our body, our desires, our thoughts. Our spiritual hearts went bad, like our hearts got sick. We quit loving what we were supposed to love, and we started loving what we shouldn't love. We were made, you see, with our hearts turned outward towards God, loving God and loving others. That was the way that we were created without sin. It was just this outpouring of love, no selfish thought. To see even in the body of Jesus, as the, the hymn in Philippians 2 says, with no selfish ambition. This is how we were created before sin. Yet when our hearts got sick because of sin... We turned inward, seeking first to love ourselves, to please ourselves in disregard to God, in disregard to others. And the scripture is not silent about this, about the sickness of our heart. In Jeremiah 17, verse 9, he warns us, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Paul says in Romans, it's not just that our hearts were sick, but our emotions were even disordered. What we love is all out of whack. We love God's gifts more than we love him. We seek to serve ourselves before we serve him. We use God to get to his gifts. And as evidence of that, what happens when, when bad things happen to you? You yell at God, God, I've obeyed you. And yet you let me get sick as if there was some kind of exchange for our obedience. We got a life free of sickness and pain, but that's not how it works. Our, order, our emotions are in disorder. Our bodies have become defiled. Just a few months ago, we walked through the book of James, who talks about our own lips are dirty because out of them come hurt and slander to others. Jesus would say, when we destroy someone with our words, when we write them off, I'm so done with that person that we're guilty of murder itself. Sexually, our bodies are defiled because we use our bodies to gratify our own lust rather than to give ourselves to one person in a sexual relationship that God designed. And Genesis, Genesis 6 says that our thoughts are continually laced with evil. We never have a good thought without the presence of evil somewhere close by. One commentator said, even our own tears of repentance 
Usually my repentance contains a mixture of pride. Man, I'm pretty awesome for repenting this way. Or unbelief. I'm not sure if God even really loves me. Louis Giglio says it's impossible to overestimate the corruption sin caused in our hearts. Sin didn't just knock us down or knock us to God's JV team or put us on probation or put us on the slow track to get our mansion in heaven. Sin wiped us out. We are stained through and through. We are by nature, Ephesians 2 says, children of wrath. We can't possibly hope to stand before God stained so thoroughly with sin. We can't possibly do anything to fix ourselves either because the problem is in my heart. And if I were to decide to fix my heart with my tainted self, there's no way I would mess the whole thing up. Toy says in verse 6, that which is born of flesh is flesh. Sin killed us. And nothing we can do by ourselves to change that. We need something more. He says in verse 5, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Think of the imagery here. Water washes. We need something that cleanses away the guilt and defilement of our sin. And then the spirit, capital S, the spirit makes alive. He's alluding to a passage in Ezekiel chapter 36. I think I have this on the screen. And I will sprinkle clean water on you. And you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness. And from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you, and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Now this is 600 years before Jesus that God gives Ezekiel this vision. And then in the next chapter, God gives Ezekiel one of the coolest visions of the Old Testament. He took Ezekiel out to a valley filled with skeletons of dead men. Jeff Grubbs, one of our elders here, loves Loves this passage. As a matter of fact, almost every time you pray with him, and I love it, he prays for the spirit to blow through the valley of dry bones. Ezekiel's there in this vision looking out over this valley of bones everywhere, and he asks him, Ezekiel, can these bones live again? To paraphrase, Ezekiel says, God, I don't think so. They just, they just, look, like a, they just look like bones. They've been dead for a pretty long time. Then Ezekiel hears the sound of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. The Old Testament word for spirit was ruach. The New Testament word is pneuma. It's the the wind that blows, the supernatural wind that was at work and the breath that God gave us in the very beginning, alive and at work. Ezekiel hears the sound of the spirit blowing and the bones begin to come together. The ligaments and tendons begin to connect and then the flesh covers these what once were just piles of bones are now an army standing up. And friends, this is what God is doing in the church. And this is what you and I need. We don't need more religion. We don't need more rules. We don't need more resolutions. 
We don't need to try to come up with a strategy to attach the bone to bone. We don't need it in the right way just to arrange the bones in the right place. And this is some of the things that we concentrate the most on. No, we need the Holy Spirit of God to blow. God doesn't want just to change your behavior. He wants to change your desires. This is what he said of Ezekiel in verse 27 of 36, and I will put my spirit, capital S, the Holy Spirit of Jesus Christ within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Not that I will force you to walk in the statutes. No, I will give you the willingness to want to do what's right. That's what the Spirit brings. God doesn't want to just change your behavior, wants to change your desires. You see, it's not pleasing to God if you obey him because you're forced to. Men, if your wife acted pleasing to you and respectful to you, had you a glass of iced tea every time you came home, but she loved someone else, would that be pleasing to you? If her heart was for someone else, she did all the right things, but her heart was, was for someone else, would that be pleasing? Of course it would not. It would be mechanical, robotic. That's not what God wants. God didn't create us because he needed robots to obey him or servants. The essence of God, at the very essence, church, you've got to get this. The very essence of God is love. Love that existed eternally between the members of the Trinity way back in Genesis. God created us to share in that perfect supernatural love. As some call it the supernatural dance. Where we're in relationship with God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. And that the love of God is poured in us and reflected back out of us everywhere we go. That's why God created us. He doesn't just want people in heaven who wish they were somewhere else, but simply use his name as a means to escape hell or to get the rewards of heaven. No, he wants people who share in his love who serve him because they love him, who would be satisfied, who would never be satisfied with heaven if we got there and it gave us all the things we ever desired, but Jesus wasn't there. That would not be heaven. This is what God is creating in our own hearts. Heart of love. A new kind of obedience then is formed. Not where we obey because we're forced to, but out of love for our Father. The dilemma of the human condition is not that we don't behave right, but that we don't love right. Case in point with Nicodemus, he behaved rightly, but he didn't love rightly. It was a disordering of his loves that was the problem in the first place. It was such a disordering that in chapter 2, Jesus had to go in and take the time to make a whip in the corner and drive out the money changers and the religious leaders and those that were in the temple because they had missed the point, right? The temple was a place where you would go in and worship the Father and receive his love. And that's why we have to be born again. Because our hearts are sick. Whereas Ephesians says it's way past sick. Our hearts are dead. There's no way we can resurrect them ourselves that's why we need to be born again well how can we be born again 
at verse 9. Skip up to verse 7, sorry. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you don't know where it comes or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered, are you the teacher of Israel and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, When we see Jesus saying truly, truly, it's this, hey, listen, I'm about to tell you the most important thing you've ever heard. I need you to listen up. We use some version of this as parents when we call our kids by their full name. You know, Hudson Powell Allen, meaning you better listen to the next words coming out of my mouth, son, or it's about to be bad for you. Truly, truly. I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we've seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I've told you earthly things and you don't believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And... As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. That whoever believes in him may have eternal life. So Nicodemus is struggling. He doesn't understand the wavelength in which Jesus is speaking. Jesus keeps talking about being born again, the flesh being corrupt, the heart being sick. We need a new heart. We need a supernatural body. We need a resurrection of the glory that God bestowed upon everyone in his likeness in their creation. We need a resurrection of that. What sin had killed needed to be resurrected. And this is what Jesus came and Nicodemus didn't understand. So Jesus goes way back to a story in the Old Testament. Again, Nicodemus, an expert in the Old Testament, would have definitely understood. about the snake or serpent in the wilderness. Verse 14, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness. We preached through the book of Exodus maybe a year ago or more, and I hated that we ended in the book of Exodus. I was telling, uh, I think, Nicholas Almasy, I, I hate that we, you know, we got them out of Egypt, but we kind of just left them there. And so much richness in the continual story, but you remember that... God rose up Moses to be a deliverer, a foreshadow of Christ who would come and deliver us ultimately from our sins. He rose Moses up to deliver the people of Israel out of Egypt and he took them out and they're not out a day before they start complaining. Are we there yet? Those of you whose kids say that and it's so annoying on an eight hour trip anywhere, are we there yet, are we there yet? That's kind of biblical. It started, it started in Exodus. Are we there yet? Are we there yet? And they just continue to complain. And Oh, man, the food, the onion soup in Egypt was so much better. And so they're complaining. They got impatient. They started to doubt the goodness of God or even the existence of God. Their hearts started to wander after other gods. And one time they camped out in the wilderness. They set up their tents at night and... God sent snakes 
Not even just snakes. If you read the story, it says fiery serpents. I don't know if many of you are fans of snakes. I think fiery serpents are like a whole, I just, I mean, is there a worse word to to describe a snake? A, A fiery serpent. And these serpents came into the camp, thousands of them. Can you imagine? If my wife found a snake in the house, literally, I'm not kidding, this is not exaggeration, I would have to convince her to sell it and not burn it. She would not be going back in. Like, that is it. I mean, she finds a spider in the garage and she wants to burn the thing down. Thousands of these, they bit them, they began to wail in pain. Many of them began to die. The Israelites were stubborn, but they weren't stupid. They put the two and two together. Oh, it's our, it's our complaining and our arguing against God that is causing such a thing. And so they run to Moses. Moses, we're being bit by these fiery serpents and people are dying. What, what can we do? And God spoke to Moses, told Moses to take a bronze image of one of the serpents and put it up on a hill on the top of a pole. And God told the people that if they would look upon the hill at the top of the pole, If they would look at that image in faith, believing that God would heal them, then they would be healed. This is in Numbers. I went and reread the story, and I just thought, man, couldn't there have been a quicker way? Like, how long does it take for you to image in bronze, right? A a, a fiery serpent, and then put it up on the pole if you're like dying in pain. It says in verse 14, and as if, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, and this is where Jesus is the, 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 the ultimate teacher here, right? He's connecting the dots for Nicodemus just as the serpent in the wilderness lifted up on the pole. So must the Son of Man be lifted up. And you can even imagine Nicodemus' question at the moment. So, The son of God has to be put on a pole and lifted up in the middle of the city for us to be healed? Exactly. Verse 15, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. This word belief that John uses is not a common in the Greek language. It's really a connection of two words. It doesn't mean cognitive belief as if Moses was um, the deliverer or that Abraham was the father of many nations. It's, It's this word that means to trust in, to put weight upon. That whoever believes in him will have eternal life. Four quick observations from that story and then we'll get back to this text as we wrap up. Jesus calls himself here again the son of man. Jesus is the son of man who is lifted up on the cross the way the snake was lifted up in the wilderness. When Jesus speaks of the son of man being lifted up, he's talking about himself. Of course, you beat me to the punch, right? Into his own crucifixion that would happen. Jesus is the source of rescue. 
Jesus and the place of the snake is the source of the healing, the source of the rescue from the poison of sin and the wrath of God. Jesus is the source of eternal life. Moses lifted up the snake, but Moses was not the rescuer in the way that Jesus sets up this comparison. Jesus himself was the rescuer. And a snake, why would, why could they put a, a lamb on a pole? That would make more sense to me. What about, why the snake? Why is Jesus portrayed as the curse? Jesus in the place of the snake is portrayed as evil and a curse. And this is what is so shocking, right? The snake is what the enemy became in the garden. It was a symbol of evil itself. The snakes were killing the people. The snake on the pole is a picture of God's curse on the people and so it is with Jesus. As Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5, for our sake God made him to be sin who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And in Galatians 3, he said, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Jesus became the curse for us. That's why it's a snake. In becoming like the snake, he took on our sin and our curse. And in becoming sin and curse for us, he took our curse away. He was cursed so that we could be healed. A couple weeks ago, Reynolds has this thing going on, the youth on Wednesday night, where the students are pairing up and giving the talk. And I love this because it prepares students to read the word and to teach the word. You know, you don't really know it until you teach it. So Claire had been asking me some questions all week and this was her passage. I mean, Reynolds, couldn't you give them something a little lighter than, than this, man? I mean, the word circumcision is in there 63 times in this. Ooh. It's just awesome talking to your seventh grade daughter about circumcision. What a beautiful verse, though, in verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming the curse for us. If that's not the most beautiful passage, you and all your sin, you and all your hostility towards God, everything you've done wrong, all of that, Jesus says, I'll gladly take all of that and place it on me. And I'll die in your place. I will take the curse so that you could be free of accusation. So that you wouldn't die because of the curse of sin. Jesus gives us eternal life. What he gives us from the cross is eternal life. He says, the son of man must be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. When our sin and God's wrath are taken away, then God is totally for us. And if God is for us, then we never will die, but live forever with him in joy. And this is what eternal life is. It's a future that we look forward to. But it's also a peace that we experience even now, eternal life. That we can walk in the most difficult circumstances.
and have real joy and real peace all because of what Jesus has done for us. Verse 16. For God so loved the world. So loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, should not die from the curse, but have eternal life. For God didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. The clearest explanation of the gospel, that's why many of you have memorized it, That's why we teach it to our kids, that they would know the gospel, that God looked down from heaven. God is the father. He's always been a father. And he saw us, his children, suffering in our sin. And he couldn't stand to leave us that way under the curse of sin, destined for eternity, separated from him. So he came to earth, God's rescue mission in search of us, and we killed him. But we didn't realize what, he, what we were doing and what he has done. That's why the very thing that Jesus said on the cross is, Father, forgive them, for they do, not, they do not know what they're doing. We didn't realize he was paying our penalty so that if we believe, if we look upon and put our trust in, we'd be saved. When Jesus says believe here, he's not just talking about the facts. Scripture says even the demons believe and they tremble. The demons believe Jesus is the son of God and rose from the dead. You believe, good. Your faith is on par with the demons. The difference in demonic faith and saving faith is that I have looked to him in desperation and leaned the weight of my sin and only hope for life upon him. I've put all my chips to the center of the table, all of it on Jesus, not hedging my bet with good works or religious living. I've put it all on Jesus. It's not just belief. It's not just a transactional prayer that equals believing. People in every religion pray for God to let them into heaven. We're talking about a cry from the heart, realizing that his finished work on the cross is our only hope and we're leaning everything we have into him. Friends, it would be pastoral malpractice not to ask you the last question. Have you been born again? Not what kind of religious lineage do you come from? Not what did your parents do? Not what decision did you make when you were in vacation Bible school or how many recommitments you made when you were in youth group. Not about your religion, not about your good works, not about hoping for the best. Have you been born again? Born again. Whoever would trust Jesus as their personal savior would have eternal life. This is the promise of Jesus this morning. I had an intern at a previous church who uh, was getting ready to go to college and she didn't know exactly what to do with her life. And um, some of the seminaries have this great opportunity for people in that stage um, to get some college credits and to go live overseas for a couple years as a journeyman, they call it. So you get two years experience overseas, just 
listening, learning, hopefully breaking your heart for the global poor and disenfranchised. And she was in a little community that had zero known believers, an unreached people group, the same one that we're still working together to reach. She spent two years there and saw no converts to the last day that she was about to leave, one little girl that she had been witnessing to and pouring her life in, was getting ready, helping her pack her bags, going to take her to the airport to fly home. The Spirit did this work in this young lady's life. She came to Christ. They didn't even sleep that night. They just talked about, they had to do quite a bit of discipleship in just a few hours. She's taken her to the airport the next day. The young girl asked the intern, the journeyman who was over there, why doesn't everyone in America believe in Jesus? I've never heard of this Jesus, but if he's as great as you say he is, then he took the curse of sin so that we could be set free. Why does not everyone who has heard this message believe in it? Jesus answers that question for us in verse 19. And this is the judgment that the light has come into the world and people have loved darkness rather than the light. They're just comfortable in the dark. They just love the dark. They love their own sin. They love being the God of their own life. They love pleasing themselves and chasing after what makes them comfortable. They love the darkness rather than the light. Friends, the invitation today is to come to the light, to place your trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord and your Savior, your hope for heaven, eternal life beginning now. I talked to someone the other day, just at a small talk, and I said something like, man, hasn't this been the the craziest year? This girl at a coffee shop, and she said, you know what, not really. Just a few months ago, I gave my life to Jesus. 2020 has been the greatest year of my life. Talk about perspective. Church, this is the main thing. This is what unifies us as a church. You know, the world's trying to divide us on every level. Republicans and Democrats, masks and no masks, all the policy, you know, office or park and rec, whatever it is, they're trying to bring division. But church, this is our main thing. This is why we're here, to see lost people become safe people. This is it, lost people into safe people. And it's not the saving that we do. We're just heralds of this beautiful message that you don't have to live in your own sin. Jesus died to take it. Would you come to him? Let me pray for us. We're gonna take communion here in just a minute, but I just wanna give us some time, just right where you're at. For those of you who entered into a saving relationship with Jesus a long time ago, maybe you would just remember that this morning and thank the Lord for it. That he called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. I 
Can't help but think though, there's gotta be some in this room who've never done that. Who've never given their heart and life to Jesus Christ. They were trusting in religion or good works. They're hoping for the best. They've never given their heart and life to Jesus. Friends, come to Jesus today. If that's you in this room, you've never given your heart and life to Jesus, and I'm not gonna ask you to stand up, and I'm not gonna come and get you, and I'm not gonna ask you to come to the stage, but I, I do want you, I do wanna pray for you. If you're in this room and said, Pastor, that's me. I've never given my heart and life to Jesus. I've never really believed, trust, looked upon and trusted in him. Would you just lift your hand up where I can see it? I just want to pray for you wherever you're at. Just one hand. Anybody else? No one's looking around. Just, hey, Pastor, you pray for me. I've got some resistance. There's another. Anybody else? You can put your hand down. Anybody else? I've never trusted in Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. Pastor, would you pray for me? Lord Jesus, you love us. I pray for these bold enough to raise, bold enough to raise their hand saying, I, I, I'm not in the family of God. I'm on the outside looking in. Lord, I pray you'd give them the gift of faith that they would step across the line of faith even today. They'd find somebody today, parents or a friend, a youth pastor or a leader, and they would just say, you know what? I, I want to give my life to Christ today. Bible says all the angels in heaven are on the edge of heaven looking down ready to celebrate this one more that comes into the kingdom of God so God with all faith we pray that you would grant them the gift of faith that we would accept new brothers and sisters into the family of God today for the rest of us Lord Give us passion and boldness to be evangelists of this great message of Jesus. Lord, as Jason and I and Phil have been praying for months and months now, Lord, that you would bring the harvest. So many people in our city that are so broken, so discouraged, so burdened, in the dark. I pray covenant would be a bright light in the midst of a dark place. Where we don't get sidetracked arguing about the lesser things. But Lord, we would be a rescue ship to seek and to save the last, the lost, and the least. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.